Good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Can you hear me? He wants me to eat it. It's, it's on. Um, Luke chapter 16. We'll be looking in verses 1 to 13. We had a wonderful opening Awana program starting this past Wednesday night. And thank all of you and Laura for serving us in that regard. Uh, this past week, I asked one of my theology classes at Boyce um, how many of them had been a part of Awana growing up. Now, you keep in mind, these Boyce students are all called to the ministry. They're there because God has saved them and God has called them to the gospel ministry. And half the hands in the room right were raised. Thank you. Now I can move it back. I think I dropped this. And so in this class, half the students had um, been a part of Awana growing up. And I said, keep your hands raised if Awana impacted you. And all of those hands remained raised. And so that just reminded me, we're not just putting on another program. Uh, this is going to be a ministry that will impact these kids eternally and will impact the nations eternally because many of these kids, God's going to raise up to be preachers and missionaries and evangelists and stay-at-home moms who teach their children the gospel. And so please be praying for that Awana ministry. Uh, there will be warfare. Anytime you're engaged in taking on the domain of darkness with the sword of the Spirit, there will be warfare. So please lift us up in that regard. Well, if you would look with me uh, in these 13 verses, let's just center on one. Then we will pray. It's kind of like the uh, psalm verse for the entire passage. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's only two choices. Let's pray. Father, this is a passage that's very difficult for Western Christians. Because the poorest among us would be considered the top 5% wealthiest in the world. But it's for that very reason this passage is crucial for us today. Give us ears to hear. Pray your spirit would empower me and illumine me to preach this text according to the intention in which it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. This past week, in the New York Times, there was an article written by Tara Siegel Bernard. The title of the article was this, Win a Lottery Jackpot? Not much chance of that. And here's what she wrote. Over the last year, people spent $5.9 billion on Powerball alone. 
They spent nearly $69 billion on all lottery games in 2012. That's just Americans. The Powerball people tweaked the game rules last year, doubling the price of tickets to $2 to raise more revenue and create more eye-catching jackpots. The odds of winning, however, remain infinitesimal. Powerball players, for instance, have a 1 in 175 million chance of winning. You have roughly the same chance of getting hit by lightning on your birthday. (laughs) I don't know what calculator uh, figured that up. Those ticket buyers are all thinking they have a shot of defying the odds. That is why the lottery is called a tax on people who don't understand math. (laughs) The excitement grows with the size of the prize, but it doesn't diminish with the size of the probability. So ticket buyers allow themselves some momentary exception or escapism since it only costs $2. Thinking about what they would do with all that money. Buying more tickets improves your odds but not by much. It would take centuries, centuries of ticket buying before you even made a dent in your odds. The difference is like moving from a big house to a small house to make it less likely a meteor would strike your roof. Well, the point is quite obvious, isn't it? The lottery is a foolish investment for your future. It's a foolish investment for your future. But Jesus would have a see today that if he is not Lord over your life, that means Lord over every aspect of your life, yes, Lord over your finances, Lord over your bank account, Lord over your material possessions, then you're playing lottery with your life and you have no chance of a payout in the end. That's what he's doing in this text. Now, at the end of chapter 15, we saw two different but wrong approaches to life. We saw the prodigal, didn't we? The prodigal wasted his life until his repentance. He wasted his father's inheritance, which is a way of saying he wasted his life. And then there's the elder brother. The elder brother spent his life seeking leverage with the father. If I do these things, then the father will be beholden to me. Both approaches are wrong. Wasting and spending. Jesus would have us see in this passage that we are called to invest our lives for the magnification of the glory of God and for the eternal well-being of other people. That's the purpose. It's the only purpose for which we were created and redeemed. In other words, Jesus is calling us to be stewards of the grace of God. Now, to teach this, he first of all gives us a parable. Luke is loaded with parables as we've seen. And we see in the first eight verses here the parable. Note with me in verse 1. 
He also said to the disciples, so he's still in parable mode. He also said, he just came off the parable of the two lost sons. And so he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now, this is Bible study 101. Who is Jesus speaking to? That becomes the most important aspect of this. Well, it tells us. He's speaking to the disciples. Who are disciples? Well, the word just means learner, follower, those who have repented of their sins and have trusted in Jesus. They've committed their lives to Jesus. If you have not done that, as evidenced by repentance, as evidenced by love, as evidenced by hungering and thirsting for righteousness then you're not a disciple. But he's speaking more than just to the disciples. Notice in verse 14, which we'll look at next time. The Pharisees who were lovers of money. Now this whole passage is about money. If you're visiting with us this day, um, we don't always talk about money. Uh, We just happen to be there in the text today, so excuse us. But verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And so it's very clear that Jesus has his disciples in mind as he gives us this parable, but he also has the Pharisees in mind as well who love money. Okay, so he's trying to expose the the surface level sins of the Pharisees, which really are surface sins, are merely, um, these surface sins can be traced back to heart level idols. And the reason they love money is because money is one of the primary ways we serve our central idol, which is self. And the the Pharisees were lovers of self. They worshiped themselves. And the way you do sacrifice to your idol in that sense is to give money to self. They love money. But he also is speaking to disciples because he understands that these disciples have to be prepared for eternity. And in order to be prepared for eternity, you, need, you must understand, increasingly so, what it means that Jesus is Lord. And if he's going to be Lord of your life, he has to be Lord of your finances. Okay? Now notice, um, he, he describes these, this, this man here uh, as a manager. Now what is a manager? Maybe your translation reads steward. It's the same thing. Um, you've got this rich man who has a manager. Now he's not a slave, okay? He's a freedman. But he works for this uh, master, this uh, rich man. And this manager is a steward of the resources of the rich man. Okay? And so that's what a manager is, just a steward. Someone who manages someone else's wealth. He doesn't own it. But he does have the privilege of enjoying it and using it for the benefit of his master. So, when the steward looks around at all the possessions that's been entrusted to him, he must remind himself, this isn't mine. It's been entrusted to me. As 1 Corinthians 4 tells us, and by the way, 1 Corinthians 4 is one of those central passages that reminds us that's what we are. We are stewards. The parable is very clear what it's teaching. The rich man in this parable is God. 
The manager, the steward, is us. And that is a central principle of Christianity. Christianity 101, we are stewards. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2 says, It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That is the requirement of stewards. That's all we are. We're just stewards. We don't own a thing. We are managers of what God has entrusted to us. But this manager had forgotten that. This manager had lost sight of the fact that what had been entrusted to him was not his. In fact, it tells us here as he was wasting his master's possessions. He had become a prodigal manager. He had become a prodigal steward. He was wasting what had been entrusted to him by the master. Now the point here is obvious, isn't it? You see, God has entrusted to us many stewardship responsibilities. Now what are they? Well, this is not necessarily comprehensive, but these are some of the central ones. First of all, God has entrusted to us time. You realize that? The time he's given you is not yours. It's given to you by the master for stewardship responsibilities. In Ephesians chapter 5, for instance, Paul says, Look carefully as you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Make the most of your time. You were entrusted with time, not so that you could build a Babel tower and make a name for yourself. You were entrusted with time to be an instrument of the grace of God, an instrument of the kingdom of God. That's the only reason you have time. And now, there are many professing Christians today, so I just don't have time to serve the Lord right now. But there's going to come a day when you will be indicted for that statement. Maybe uh, the Lord, I'm just being hypothetical here, maybe the Lord will pull out the time you spent on Facebook. Or he will pull out the time you spent on your Twitter or your email or Netflix or on the golf course, okay, or in the field hunting or on the pond fishing. And he will use these things to indict us for that excuse. The fact is you have been given time and there are no excuses, okay? You are a steward of your time. What are you doing with your time? That's related to the kingdom of God. If you don't understand that, then he's not Lord over your time. And that's a dangerous place to be. Secondly, we have been given stewardship responsibility with our talents. You have been given natural abilities, natural talents, but you've also been given a spiritual gift as a believer. Those gifts are given to you, entrusted to you, for the edification, the building up of the body of Christ. It's not so that you again could build your own Babel Tower and make a name for yourself. Okay? First Peter chapter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Again, you can't get past the stewardship responsibilities. You've been given talents. Thirdly, you've been entrusted with the stewardship responsibility of truth. 
the Word of God, the Word of the Gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel. Most of us have Bibles that we could stack from the floor to our ceiling in our homes. And yet we live in the most biblically illiterate times in American history. We're going to be held accountable for our knowledge of this book. We're going to be held accountable uh, for our zeal in teaching others about this book. And in particular, the gospel of this book. Okay, so we have a stewardship responsibility with the truth, the word of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But in the context, in the context of this parable, Jesus isn't talking about these things. He's talking about the stewardship responsibility of money, that is, our treasures. That's the context of this parable. In this regard, Warren Wearsby writes, The thief says, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. The selfish man says, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. But the Christian must say, what's mine is a gift from God. I'll share it. Well, the manager here, he's called dishonest. He's, he's called dishonest by Jesus. And so it appears that's because he's selfishly wasting his master's goods. Now that is a tough call there. To be called dishonest because you've taken what is not yours and you're using it and wasting it. Uh, in fact, the word wasting here is the same word. That's used in chapter 15, verse 13, where it says the prodigal squandered his property in reckless living. And so the steward is squandering. He's wasting what has been entrusted to him. And as a result, Jesus is going to call him dishonest. I mean, that is a tough, tough description. Well, the master hears about it. The master hears that the steward has not been faithful with what's been entrusted to him. And so he calls a meeting. He wants an explanation. Notice in verses 2 and 3. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He's going to fire him. Okay? And so the steward recognizes that the firing is coming. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I am ashamed to beg. Well, in those days there was no severance package. So he's in a bad way. He's, he's kind of like a white collar guy. You know, you, you shake a white collar guy's hands and they're just soft kind of like mine. Uh, uh, he just, he doesn't know how to work with his hands, all right? And he, he's got too much pride to beg for money, and so he's in a bad way. And he can't change the past. He's, he's, the firing is imminent. But what he can do, he can, he can, he can do something to affect his future. 
And what he's going to do is he's going to make friends with his master's creditors. He's going to make friends with those who owe his master some money. Now, why would he make friends with those guys that owe his master money? Because when he gets fired, they'll take care of him, okay? So that's what he's doing. So notice in verse 4, I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he, he's going to determine to give each one of these guys that owe his master money a discount with the qualification that they pay up immediately. All right? Verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now to understand how shrewd this is, we need to understand that in Jewish culture, and we see it several times in the law, Exodus 22, case in point, that when a Jew loaned money to another Jew, they were not allowed to charge interest. Okay? But Jews were very, in that day, they were very sneaky and sinful. And so they found ways to hide the business interest into the loan. Okay? They would hide it into the principal. All right? And that's what the manager understands. And so this guy calls in all the master's debtors. And he says, how much do you owe my master? Well, this guy, he owes 100 measures of oil, but 50 of it is interest. So he takes out the interest. You don't have to pay the interest. Just pay the 50. Another one says, well, I owe 80. Well, um, you just take out what is the principle. Do you understand? That's what's going on there. There was an interest that was hidden inside the principle. And so the master or the manager does this with all the master's debtors. And at this point, all of these um, debtors become his debtor. Because now they're beholden to him for taking care of their debt. That brings us to verse 8, which is an interesting comment. We wouldn't expect this, but the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, what does shrewdness mean? He's not commending him for his dishonesty. And it's debated with what he did with these, uh, these people that owed money was dishonest in the first place. It may be the fact that he was wasting the master's money in the first place that he was called dishonest. But what does it mean when it says he commends him for his shrewdness? Well, the American Heritage Dictionary defines shrewdness as clever awareness or resourcefulness. Clever awareness. In other words, he's aware of his situation. He's aware of the very dark future that awaits him. And so he gets very resourceful to deal with that. That's the parable. 
Now, what are the principles? We have to answer the so what question. What is the answer to the so what question to this parable? Why is this parable is important to disciples? That brings us to the principles. Notice in the second part of verse 8, Jesus adds, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, who are the sons of this world? It's a very interesting description. The sons of this world are those people whose affections and pleasures and pursuits are earthbound. It's the unbeliever. And there may be some sons of this world in the room this morning. Does that describe you? Are your hopes, are your aspirations, are your dreams, affections, and pleasures, is your identity earthbound? Jesus would call you a son of this world. But the point here is to show that even worldly people, unbelievers, know how to use their money and their energy in order to secure their future interest. This guy understands the future is not bright for him unless he does something about it. And so he gets shrewd. Now why is that? Because, and this is a very important principle, worship energizes everything we do. Worship is behind everything we do, even for the sons of this world. Everybody worships something. There is something that is our greatest love. And our greatest love is behind everything we do. And for the sons of this world, self is their God. They live for self. And so they're going to do what they believe they need to do to worship at the altar of self. Now what is the point? Jesus said they're very shrewd at taking care of their future interest. How much more so should the sons of light? And that's how he describes us. We are the sons of light. Jesus is the light of the world. And when we are united to Christ by faith, we become the light of the world. The sons of the light. How much more so should the sons of light... Be shrewd because we're not dealing with issues of mere time. We're dealing with issues of eternity. But Jesus is doing something else here as well. He is shaming those disciples who are, let's just say, slothful with regard to eternal things. It's easy to do that. It's easy to be conformed to the pattern of this world. And Jesus is exposing our slothfulness with regard to things eternal. Listen to J.C. Ryle in that regard. He says, The diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. The zeal and tenacity of men in business to get earthly treasures may well reprove the slackness and indolence of believers 
about treasures in heaven. May these words sink into our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. Do you get the point? Here's a man that doesn't even know God. And he is zealous about treasures on earth. How much more so should we be concerned about eternal matters? And essentially, Jesus is going to give them three principles to remedy this kind of erroneous thinking. Now notice in verse 9. This is where we get to the heart of the parable. Or the point of the parable. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The first principle is this. First, use your material resources to make everlasting friends. Now I'll explain that in a moment. Use your resources, material resources, to make everlasting friends. That's the first principle. The shrewdness that Jesus is calling us to. Time on earth is brief. Keep in mind this, uh, this steward, this manager, recognized that he was going to be fired soon. That kind of is a picture of our impending death. Time on earth is short. Psalm 39 calls our life a hand breath. That's how short our time on earth is. For those of us who are middle-aged or older, we know more than someone who's a teenager or someone in their early 20s how quickly time flies. And the reason for that is we were created for eternity. And so time is like a shadow. Our time is short. It's running out, just like it was for this manager. And notice, when it fails, he says, I tell you, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What is it? What do you think it is there when it fails? Your life and the possessions entrusted to you. Okay? They have a termination date. When it fails, you may be received into your eternal dwellings. What you have not invested in eternity, when it fails, will be put back into the monopoly box. That's what he's saying. It will serve you, uh, it will have no service to you in eternity. You know, it's a foolish and tragic and shocking and heartbreaking um, thing to see how God's wealth is wasted by those who call Him Lord. They use their wealth entrusted to them as if Jesus has not died on the cross for sinners, as if Jesus has not been raised from the grave for our justification, as if there's not coming a day of judgment. It's heartbreaking and it's tragic. Um, this is so contrary to our... What Jesus is calling us to is so contrary to our Western kind of thinking. When people retire today and they know they're nearing closer to death, what do they often do in America? They indulge. They indulge. They buy more and more stuff and they want to experience it all before they die. That's nihilistic. That's as if you don't, you don't have eternity waiting for you in the balance. They're kind of like the uh, cartoon I read, Calvin and Hobbes. As Calvin and his friend Hobbes reflect on a snowman they've made. 
Hobbes says, this snowman doesn't look very happy. And Calvin says, he's not. He knows it's just a matter of time before he melts. The sun ignores his existence. He feels his existence is meaningless. And then Hobbes responds by asking uh, if his existence is really as meaningless to the snowman uh, as he thinks. And here's Calvin's reply. Nope. He's about to buy a big screen TV. I'm not even sure I understood that cartoon. But it seems like the snowman was in denial of his impending melting. And this is the way unfaithful stewards think. They live for the moment. Okay? They just want to secure the moment. They'll concern themselves with issues of eternity when they face it. Do you realize how long eternity is? No, you don't. None of us do. Eternity is eternity. There's no other word for it. It's everlasting. And we live as if we have eternity here. That's the unfaithful steward's mentality. And Jesus says there's a better investment. Use your resources, he says, to make eternal friends. Verse 9. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Now, what does he mean by unrighteous wealth? I just, I think what that means is essentially wealth can be used. It's amoral. It can be used in a, in a, in a righteous way or an unrighteous way, but it's amoral. He says, but use it. Use your material possessions not to make a name for yourself, not for the pleasures of this world, but to make eternal friends, everlasting friends. Now, who are these friends? The friends are those who will come to Christ because of the way you invested your master's resources. The friends are those who will be conformed to Christ, who will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ by the way you've used your resources. The friends are the churches and the missions agencies and the missionaries who will be resourced and empowered to carry out their ministries because of the way you use your resources. That's what it means to live shrewdly. You're living in light of eternity. You're not living in the now. That's the first principle that Jesus would give us here. The second principle is be faithful with what you have. It's that simple. It seems so basic, but how many of us are? Be faithful with what you have. Verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Now, this is a general principle about everything. Uh, If you are faithful in a small thing, you're probably going to be faithful in larger matters. If you're unfaithful in small things, you're probably going to be unfaithful in larger matters. Okay? But verse 10 through verse 12 had to be taken together as a unit. He's talking about money. He's talking about faithfulness when you don't have much. Now, compared to the rest of the world, I just got back from Zambia. I'm going to Haiti next week. Compared to the rest of the world, each one of us is overflowing with material things, okay? So you can think you don't have much, 
Um, but it's because you're comparing yourself to Donald Trump, not the 95% the of the world as we know it today. He's talking about money. Sometimes I'll hear people say, if I only had more, I'd give. If I only had more, I'd give. But that's impossible to say, so that becomes an irrelevant statement. Okay? What Jesus is saying here, the only way to see if you would give, if you had more, is what you do when you have less. Now, I rarely, I tell my preacher boys, don't ever give an illustration of yourself that makes you look like a hero. Okay, if you're going to give an illustration of yourself, then you need, to, you need to expose your own issues, okay? So this is not intended to be a heroic uh, illustration. Because I've done a lot of things wrong, okay? This is one of the things I did right, by God's grace. When I was in college, I was, making, I was a graduate assistant coach for the University of Alabama. You'd think with all that money, they'd pay me better, but I made $435 a month. I kid you not. And that's why they can pay Nick Saban what they pay him today. <laughs> so, $435 a month. And I was not, I, I was independent of my parents at this point financially. I was living on $435 a month. I determined in 1991, after years of idolatry where I had not given anything, I'd blown it. I treated my money like it was mine. In September of 1991, I determined I will tithe $43.50. That's my tithe. The church didn't even know. When it's that little, the church doesn't even know. But that's okay. I started tithing $43.50 a month, and I have tithed and given more, grown in that, since that day. And I'm telling you, you cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God. And if you're not giving, you don't trust Him as provider. Okay? Be faithful with what you have. Notice in verses 11 and 12. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Now this is not a health, wealth, and prosperity uh, verse. If you give money, you're going to be flowing over with money. No, some of the godliest, most generous people in the world have to live check to check. The true riches here are the eternal riches that you will experience because of faithful stewardship. The kind of riches that language cannot even capture. And he says in verse 12, a very sobering statement, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? I mean, this is an eye-opening statement. If you can't be faithful with what he's entrusted to you, how can you assume he's going to entrust anything else to you? Could that even be eternal life? Because if I'm not faithful with what he's entrusted to me, maybe I'm not the disciple that I think I am. Don't we have the capacity to fool ourselves? Self-deception? That is a sobering statement. The point is, your money's not yours. Nothing's yours. You're a manager. That's it. You have borrowed goods. You're living on borrowed time. And if you don't get that... 
One day it's going to come back to bite. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Do you see what Luke is doing here? You know, it's interesting. As we go through Luke, we've been in Luke a long time. We're going to finish in the spring, by God's mercy. Spring of what year, I won't tell you. No, it's spring. <laughs> Topical preachers typically have about 12 to 15 topics that they pull out year after year. You can, it's just predictable. Marriage, finances, anxiety... When you preach through books, ironically, you deal with more topics than topical preachers do. Here's what Jesus is doing. And Luke, with his pen, he is giving us all of these different issues because Jesus understands that because he's Lord, all the areas of life must come under his lordship, including our finances. If he's not Lord of your finances, he's not Lord of your life. It's very clear what he's saying here. And that brings us to the third principle. And the final principle is found in verse 13. A faithful steward seeks to bring everything under the mastery of Jesus. Verse 13. The heart of the verse. No servant can serve two masters. You can't get any clearer than that. You could say, well, if I could only read Greek, I could really get at the heart of what he's saying. Trust me, whatever translation you have is what the Greek is saying. You cannot serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. He said, I don't hate Jesus. Again, this is an idiom. If you love something more than you love Jesus, you hate him. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's the point. If he's not Lord of your finances, he's not Lord of your life. Now that's a hard statement for Westerners. There's no riding the fence here. We would refer, I would prefer to stay on the fence and say, you know what? I'm going to serve God with some of my money. And then I'm going to serve myself with the rest of that money. And that's what makes the question so wrong-headed that I've heard. Should I tithe before taxes or should I tithe after taxes? That is such an irrelevant question because it's all God's. The gospel changes everything because Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He gave it all. It's all his, okay? Jesus is calling to submit to his lordship. It's one of the most important verses in the entire scripture on lordship. You see, our hearts have the ability to only have one dominating love. You can only have one dominating love of your life. And if it's not Jesus, you're an idolater. Think of it this way. Our hearts are multi-divided. In every heart, there's a boardroom. A board of trustees, okay? And these, these board members are calling the shots. So you got this big boardroom, you have this big long table, and you have leather chairs around that table. You have bottled water and coffee and the whiteboard, and everybody has their Macs out. And there's this big boardroom, okay? And the board members are calling the shots. Okay? And they are arguing and they're debating and they're voting and there's agitating. Now, there's agitation among them. They can come to consensus. Now, who are these board members? Well, you have 
You have the, the private self. You have the social self. You have uh, the sexual self. You have the recreational self. You have the religious self. You've got all of these board members who have a vote in your heart. Okay? Now, on this boardroom, you can accept Jesus in one of two ways. You can allow Jesus to come in and be just one more board member on that committee. So he gets a vote along with all the other votes. Now keep in mind, each one of these members needs money. Each one of these members receives mammon. Alright? The way you serve these members is to pay them. And so you can accept Jesus in one of two ways. You can bring him in on the board and he gets a vote. But that's just going to cause greater heartache in your heart. Or you can bring him in and you can say, you know what? I don't like the way my life is working out. The way it's shaping up. Jesus, I want you to fire all the other board members. Okay? I want one board member and I want one board member to have a vote. Now here's the deal. In accepting Jesus in this way, you're subtracting all the other board members. That is the idols. That's what Jesus is calling us to. But when he fires all the other committee members, he gets the money. He gets the money. If he doesn't have the money, then you haven't fired the other board members. They're still there. They're still representing. They're still voting. They still have a voice. Money is one of the primary ways we serve the idols of self. It's one of the primary ways. And the best way to fire these board members is to submit to Jesus as Lord. It doesn't mean you never spend money on yourself. It doesn't mean you don't spend money on your family. Let's don't, let's don't overreact. Uh, our, our, our self-needs and our family's needs are part of what God's doing in the world. Okay? So you're not serving the world well if you're not serving your family. And it doesn't mean you can't be wealthy either. God raises up wealthy people to, to serve his kingdom, to serve his church. But it does mean if he's not Lord of everything, he's not Lord of anything. That's what it means. And where's a good starting point? A tithe. You can't outgive God. That's a good starting point. A tithe is training wheels. We'll say, I've never read the tithe in the New Testament. You see the principle even before the giving of the law. Where Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. You see it over and over again. Tithe is a structured starting point. And you know what you're saying by tithe? You're saying this. I'm a steward. I'm not an owner. That's what you're saying. You're the owner. I'm the steward. Here's what else you're saying. I can't outgive you. You know, the only place in the Bible that says we can test God is in the area of giving. And Malachi says, test me in these things. So I'm going to tithe and I'm going to declare, I cannot outgive you. You're Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. You're also saying when you tithe, I esteem you above all material things. I love you more than anything my money can buy. And you're saying one more thing as well. I am jealous for your name. I am jealous that your name would be known to the nations. And that's why I give to you what you've entrusted to me. And consider, 
That's for the mission. And consider what Jesus gave for his mission. He didn't tithe. He gave it all. Now what should that do for us? Why did he give his all? Because our greatest problem is sin. And he came to deal with our sin. He took our sin on the cross and he was punished for our sin. God's wrath was poured out on him. And he was raised so that we could be forgiven. And if that doesn't stir you to give sacrificially and gladly, then you need another dose of the gospel. And tell me one one other thing that the gospel does for us. If he would do that for us, then when he tells us not to be mastered by money, he's not telling us that to rob us of our joy. He's telling us that to enhance our joy. It's a call to kingdom stewardship. Will you be a steward today? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this passage.